Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. Let's get this show on the road here. Here we go now in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Carrie Newoff, the author of the At Your Best as well as the host of the Carrie Newhoff podcast. Carrie, thanks for coming on the show today, my man. Hey, it's great to be with you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Always great to have a fellow podcaster on because we don't have to worry about all the technicalities, Carrie. I was right. really excited. Mike tends to work most days. It's, it's very encouraging. Exactly. And, and there is times, though, I'm sure as you've experienced, sometimes the tech doesn't like to work. But today, Correct. we think the tech gods are with us. And today we're going to be talking about escaping the stress spiral. So I want to ask you this first. Is it possible for high achievers to escape the stress spiral? What is that? I think so. Yeah, I think, first of all, most high achievers either are there or have been there. I was in Dallas a couple of years ago speaking live to a room of about eight, 900 leaders. Patrick Lencioni was one of the keynotes. And I remember it was my turn on stage. Uh, the host thought it would be really fun to do a live poll of the audience. And they said, how many of you over the last 12 months have experienced symptoms of burnout? We left it wide open. Okay. So I don't know what burnout is to you, but like, Hey, have you? And so your hand went up, you know, what blew me away. 93% of the leaders in the room said that they had experienced some symptoms of burnout in the last year. And having been through burnout myself 15 years ago, I got really choked up. Like I, I had to stop my talk when, when the poll results came up on the screen. I think it's an epidemic. And so I think it's possible. There are people, I got a buddy, actually, I talk about him at the beginning of the book. He sold multiple New York Times bestselling books. He's like 45, got two kids at home. And he said, do you have to burn out? Like, is a rite of passage? Like, can I escape this? And I said, it's possible. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I think a lot of leaders either are in burnout, have flirted with it. And uh, I think it's possible to escape the stress spiral, but you need a strategy. And actually what you'll discover is the top leaders, the people who do it best, mm. are often show very few signs of stress. And you think, well, what is it? Like, what are they drinking? What, <laughs> what kind of team do they have? Like, what, what is their hack? Mm. And um, so what I, what I want to do is I want to share a message that I think is very doable for most leaders. So I got to ask you though, Kevin, your hand went up. Do you think you experienced signs of burnout in the last year? Oh yeah, absolutely. With the podcast. So tell me about that. What was that like for you? Yeah. Um, so I was trying to develop the course, the video mm -hmm. course, and I was going, I just didn't have the time I thought to put in the work to do the course well produce it, record it, which, you know, as you know, it takes a long time, a lot of edits, <laughs> a lot of work. And then, you know, also produce and edit the own podcast. Cause we were doing three a week. 
And so yeah. it just got to be a lot. And then someone recommended, hey, how about you put the podcast on the burner for a while and then, you know, come back to it later. And I just kind of realized that the podcast was really the thing that was keeping me going. It was really my passion. Mm. And I kind of got away from that. And so I really experienced burnout. Can I go back to the podcast? Do I want to do it? Am I having the same fulfillment when you kind of step away from that? So that was my burnout over this past year, I guess. Oh, I think I think most people can identify with that. And I see Julie in the chat saying this topic is so relevant right now. It's so relevant right now. And what happened to me, I think it does happen to most successful people. So here's here's a couple of indicators. You know, do you feel overwhelmed? Do you feel overworked? Do you feel overcommitted? In other words, you know, I say, hey, Kevin, are you free in two months? And you're like, yeah, that's great. You look at your calendar, it's wide open. You're like, yeah, Carrie, let's hang out and do lunch, you know. Uh, two months from now, Thursday afternoon. Mm. And it seemed like a really good decision now, but you get to, what would that be? That would be uh, October. You get to October and all of a sudden your whole week got jammed and you're like, oh, that was a bad decision. Can I cancel on Carrie? That's not very fair. He's flying in for this. What do I do? I think I'll cheat my family if you're married or whatever. And it's just a mess. And most leaders I know, and it, you don't have to be leading a you know multiple seven-figure, eight-figure business, but they're overwhelmed, overworked, and overcommitted. In fact, students are overwhelmed, overworked, overcommitted. Mm -hmm. Retired people feel overwhelmed and overcommitted. And it's like, we have these devices that follow us in our pocket. Work used to be something you go to. Now, work goes with you, mm -hmm. right? right? So you're sitting there watching Netflix or uh, catching up at night with a friend and all of a sudden your phone buzzes, it's a text from work. It's like, mm -hmm. hey, we didn't get the edit on this done. I need you to drop in. I need you to you know, do some voiceover on the podcast or whatever. And you're like, ah, I was sitting around a fire with my best friend right. <laughs> relaxing and now I got to go in. So it's this absolute scrambled egg mess of a life that we've gotten ourselves into. And burnout has been around for decades. It started, the term was first coined by a medical doctor in the 70s to refer to physicians who felt like patient fatigue and compassion fatigue. And it's expanded now to just like, you know, you're 18 and you're burned out. You're 38 and you're burned out. You're 58 and you're burned out. And uh, I think there's two forms of burnout too. Mm. The kind that hit me in 2006 was, uh, you know, the way I look at it, if you don't declare a finish line, your body will. And my body went on strike. So at that time I was leading a local church we had a lot of success. Everything was going great on the outside. And people kept telling me I was going to burn out, but I was superhuman. And shortly after I hit my 40th birthday, my body just, when I was feeling great, like if you asked me the day before I burned out, how are you feeling? I'd be like, I'm awesome, man. And then my body's like, this is ridiculous. We're mm -hmm. finished. Mm -hmm. And I lost all my passion, all my energy and really, really started to struggle. And it was about three or four months where I was just in the dark ages. Like I, I had no passion, no motivation, got out of bed every day. My, I had brain fog like you wouldn't believe. Mm. And I think I would have been diagnosed with clinical depression. Mm. And by the grace of God, after about four months of that, uh, I started to get a little bit sharper, some passion returned, but I'll never forget that. So that's one form of burnout. And if you've had it, you know you had it because your body just basically like, that's it. But the other form is what I call low-grade burnout. Mm. So it's not a medical term, but it's simply, I define it this way. The functions of life continue, but the joy of life is gone. Mm. So you're getting up, you're going to work. Sure. You're pretty passionate about this when you started, but now you're like, it's just another job. It's just another this. It's just another that. And you don't feel anything anymore. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. Mm. Oh, yeah. No, that's powerful. And I think what's interesting about that is, is people, I guess, perceive their work or their career as a part of their identity. So yes. when like something like that happens, how do you have to look at yourself? What are some questions you can ask yourself? to change that identity or to give it more fulfillment? Yeah, that is a really good question. Identity is a very big issue. It's a huge issue in sexuality these days, but let's talk about the leadership sphere. So mm. I was a performance addict. I, that's how I would diagnose it. That's how my counselor would diagnose it. Not in terms of, oh, look at me getting gold at the Olympics. It's definitely not me. But like we had the fastest growing, I led a church at the time, church in our denomination. We had one of the largest in the country in our denomination. I was probably unhealthily proud of that fact. And I got too much 
um, validation from the size and growth of our organization. Okay. Now, I look back on that. So how big was our church at the time? Maybe we had an attendance of about 800, so maybe 1,500 people at our church, which in Canada, I, I live near Toronto. That's a big church still mm -hmm. today. Um, but what I didn't know is that if you fast forwarded 15 years, I would be now leading exponentially more. Mm -hmm. um, so we have on, on my different platforms, leaders access our content about 1.5 million times a month. So we get a lot of correspondence, a lot of downloads, lots of social media interaction, far more requests than we could possibly handle, far more invitations that we can possibly say yes to. Mm. And my old formula was that more people, more people I was responsible for just equaled more hours. Well, the problem is that doesn't scale, right? Like in startup, there's a hustle, hustle, hustle. So you're hustling and you're getting stuff done. But like, if that's the next 40 years of your life, you're, you're toast. And so what I had to learn was how to leverage time, leverage energy and leverage priorities so that now I can serve, you know, multiple times more people than I did back then, but I have time off and I'll be off in the evening and I'll have weekends off and I just took a month off. And so what I'm, the irony is I'm getting more done in less time, way more accomplished, way less stress. And that's why the stress spiral will never let you do that. It'll let you grow and you can keep growing, but you get more and more tired every year, you get more and more tired every day. Uh, maybe things start to fall apart relationally at home. Maybe internally, you're not doing very well emotionally, relationally, spiritually, um, if you track in that category. And then eventually we see this in leaders all the time. People resign, they quit. They're like, well, I'm going to move cities or uh, maybe I'll change careers or I'll change jobs. But the problem is you bring you wherever you go. Right. And if the problem is me and I'm getting my identity from my success, I can change careers, but I'm just going to climb right up that ladder again and probably make it worse because I've never diagnosed even what was wrong with me in the first place. Hmm. So my identity, I'm a person of faith, comes from my, my spiritual center. And what I had to learn was I was drawing it from... Uh, I was drawing it from people's validation. I was drawing it from the numbers on the spreadsheet. I was drawing it from all these, you know, false things. And those are all good things. I still lead a growing company, a growing organization, more people than I've ever led before. But now that's not my validation. That's a privilege. That's an opportunity. But my identity is secure in my relationship with God, in my case with Christ. And um, so that's fine. And now my leadership is a way to serve other people. So I'm still working on that. It's not like it's not got a bow tied on it and it's all worked out, but I'm questioning my motivation on a regular basis and trying to, there's a, there's a leader I follow who said years ago, he said, never put your identity into something that can be taken away from you. Mm. So, you know, you're, if, if you're in love, that person could die. They could get a disease. There could be an accident. Same with kids, with careers, you can get fired or, you know, you can go bankrupt. Uh, your money, your possessions, that can all be taken away from you. But who are you on the inside? You identify that, you become secure in that. And, and, and then you bring that to your work and you bring that to your team. So that's what I've had to reorient myself around for the last 15 years. That's very, very interesting. And I'm curious about the process of you going from successful business owner, leader, entrepreneur, if you will, to now escaping and hmm. the self-reflection that it took to understand who you were, who your values are and what your values are. The way I like to think about it, Carrie, is like sometimes and oftentimes we're trapped within a bottle and the labels on the outside. Sometimes we do need that validation. Sometimes we need to understand what our core values are and do people perceive us as what we're trying to put out into the world? Did you reach out to anyone to affirm your beliefs, to affirm your identity? Or did you look kind of more inward and reflect on the, the book of God? Yeah, it's a great question. So definitely I had a lot of help from counselors and leadership coaches who helped me kind of process this in a much more healthy way. I would say if you go right back to my childhood, somewhere along the line, and most people can identify this with this, you believe something that wasn't true. So one of the things I came to believe very early is that if I performed well, I would get accepted. 
So that could be track and field, which wasn't my thing. I was an asthmatic child, so you know, track and field wasn't going to be my thing. But if I brought home a good report card, if people called me smart, that felt very valid um, and very validating. And then that unchecked went into my adult life. And the problem was it became a like a hole that had no bottom. So I remember in my 30s, I would give a talk and I would come home. My wife, biggest fan, biggest critic. She would, best critic, I should say, not my biggest critic, best critic. Uh, I would ask her, like, how did that go? And she, she said one day, I remember she said, oh, it was good. I'm like, well, good or like really good right. or like great. And she's like, no, no, it was good. I'm like, well, so you're saying it wasn't good. And like, no, I said it was good. And I'm like, yeah, but like, why wasn't it great? And this went on all the time. And that day she just looked at me and she said, I don't know what hole you're trying to fill, but I will never be able to fill it. Mm -hmm. And she was right. And see, when your identity is your profit for the year, when your identity is the growth of the company, when your identity is um, how successful am I, that, that is, that is very unsatisfying. And so, you know, you, you serve a lot of impact-based leaders. I have had to look inside. And to me, that was fundamentally a spiritual exercise. So as a Christian, I have to root my identity in who God says I am, not who others say I am, or my success says I am. And that I believe is secure. So once that was secure, then how do I approach my leadership differently? Mm. And so I'm still driven. I was a very driven leader in my 30s, but I'm driven for different reasons. I'm driven for the greater good, not because I need a big growing organization to feel good about myself. I want to serve leaders. And on my good days, I get this right. On my bad days, I can, you know, fall into the black hole like everybody else. But on my good days, I actually want to serve leaders because I hope to make a difference in their lives. The benefit is it does feel good, but if it goes away and we have a bad month, a bad quarter, a bad year, or things start to go sideways. You know, when I, when I stepped out of my role for 20 years, I was the lead pastor of a church. And for the last six, I've been the CEO of my company. But when I stepped out of that role and left the staff, I asked a mentor who's in his 80s. I said, what did you learn when you left? Like when you retired, so to speak. And he just said, Carrie, they forget you quickly. And that's true, right? Like, like, think about it. Maybe you founded a company before. This is your second company. And the other company you sold or, you know, somebody else took over. And you go in and it's like, I'm the founder. And, and people are like, sorry, who are you? What, what, like, and you're like, oh, I'm not that important. Hmm. And so what is leadership about? It's really about serving others and the ability to make a difference. And so when I carry on my good days, if I carry that into my work, um, I like record months. I like record years. We had a record month last month. That felt really good. But my identity isn't, a isn't tied to that anymore. And that allows me to serve you better. Because if you don't like me or you walk away, I, I don't need anything from you. I can want something for you. And so that's kind of a very philosophical, emotional, spiritual answer to your question. We can get a lot more practical. But that has sort of got me, that allowed me to take a month off and not cheat. Hmm. That allowed me, you know, tonight I'm going to have a, a night with my wife. We're going to relax. I'm not going to check my phone. I'm not going to open up my laptop while we're, quote, watching a movie. Hmm. Um, and I just got to get these five emails, honey. The emails can wait until the morning. Hmm. And they never used to wait because my identity was, and, and then that's never enough, right? It's like, you, it's never enough. How much success is enough? If that's fueling you, the answer is never. Mm. And so right now I can look at it with gratitude and go, wow, a million and a half times a month, leaders access my content. That's, first of all, unbelievable. And secondly, amazing. And I'm grateful for it. I don't know how long it'll last, um, but let me be a good steward of that while it does. And it seems like that's something you've picked up along the way, the stewardness, the service. And I think I would agree with you. Leadership is also about leaving something better than you found it. Will this organization totally. be able to run after I leave? It's a question not that many people think about. Yeah, I think about it through three levels of leadership. Been thinking about that a lot this summer, particularly with a month off. 
So level one is nothing runs without you. So any leader who's listening to this, who is in startup mode, I get it, right? You got a year or two or five years where you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off and you know where everything is. And, you know, the only person who can really run the thing is you. And I get that. That's like founder syndrome. You get there. And very few people don't go through level one leadership where everything depends on you. But if you stay there, you're basically operating like a mom and pop convenience store. We've all been to those. They're awesome people. You know, they've done it for 25 years, but mom and pop run everything. You know, mom is the CEO. Pop is the CFO. He's also shipping and receiving. So the CFO's in the back, like unloading stuff. They can only take one week off a year because nobody can run the store. They're in there opening the doors at 8 a.m. They stay until 10 p.m. every night, sometimes till midnight putting stock away, balancing the books, and they're exhausted, but they can never get out of that. And that's where most leaders live. That's level one leadership. Level two leadership is things run without you. So you're not quite running around like a chicken with a head cut, your head cut off. You got a couple of team members or maybe a few, and you can exit for a weekend, a week, even up to a month. Mm. And things start to, to actually run without you. But the third level of leadership, and very few leaders ever get there, is not can things run without you, but can things grow without you? Mm. So at the church for 20 years, we started with a handful of people. When I was finished, we had three or 4,000 people who called our church home. It's like, well, that's a big church. I did not expect that would happen. Um, my job was to set up the team. When I turned 50, I stepped out of that lead pastor seat, the senior role. And they, they don't only have to run it without me, they have to grow it without me. Well, good news. The church grew in the five years since I haven't been the lead pastor. So that was a job well done. Now in my company, Carrie Newhoff Communications, well, it's a Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. You go to my blog, it's carriehoff.com, right? I write these books. So can the company run without me? We got to level two this year. So we're a couple mm -hmm. of years into the company. We're at level two. I took 30 days off. We had a record July. That's a good thing. Now, what I want to do is I want to position them to grow without me. And what that allows you to do, if you can have balance, and well, I don't really believe in balance. We can talk about that. But if you can have the ability to unplug and really trust your team and delegate, you can move to from level one to level two and eventually to level three. And how are you thinking about that? You just mentioned Carrie Newhoff, Carrie Newhoff, books, courses, <laughs> podcasts. You know, in terms of growth and, and growing on their own exponentially, how I, I was, I'm always curious about the podcasters and the authors that I interview on the show. Will they be able to sustain this? What are your thoughts and what are you thinking about to get to that level three? Yeah, it's something we do think about a lot. So the reason it's Kerry Newhoff Communications is uh, and all that, this was a hobby for me. Yeah. Um, but eight years ago, I just started writing on the side thought it'd be fun to start a podcast and millions of people showed up and I'm like, uh-oh. But by that time it had been branded. And so, you know, the one thing, it's not true of Nike. Most people couldn't tell you who the CEO of Nike is. They could maybe tell you that Phil, you know, forget his name. Um, was it Phil Knight? Phil Knight started it, right? I was going to say Phil Jackson, wrong Phil. <laughs> Phil Knight started it, right? Few people could tell you that. So the brand was bigger than the person. But if you look in the church space, often um, or even in the celebrity space, we live in this weird culture where people follow people. Mm. So we're at the point now where what I'm trying to do behind the scenes, and this is true for any founder who's listening, is I am trying to figure out how to position our company. And we're looking at developing different brands, like At Your Best might be its own brand down the road. Uh, I've got the Art of series, Art of Better Preaching, Art of Better Reaching. That could be its own brand down the road. The High Impact series could be a different brand down the road. So we're looking almost like Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey's a really good case study. So a lot of people, millions and millions of people know Dave Ramsey, but he has a real company. Mm -hmm. So he's got almost a thousand employees. He's got multiple personalities, most of whom he's not related to. And he's done a really good job of building that apart from him. So it is Ramsey or the Lampo group is their legal name, but he's really building success, uh, like successorship into that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I would like to do something like that. So I figure this is a 20 year run ahead of me, I hope. And, uh, I'd love it to be a 20, 25 year run. And so I'm going to be building up leaders, investing in other people over the next few years, and we'll get the company position there. And then I get to play a role, but the whole name thing is really weird. The good thing is, you know, my name is not Bill Smith. So I'm, 
if you misspell my name and hack it to death, you'll still find me. So the URL is really an advantage. When you have a strange name, unique name like Carrie Newhoff, people can find you. So it works for you and it works against you. So uh, we are working on that. That's a long answer to a great question. Well, congratulations. It's, it's exciting to always see um, people in the stage of growth that they're currently in, you know, the, the brain just sparking uh, from synapse to synapse right now, just going, okay, what am I going to do? How do, how do I, um, you know, mimic Dave Ramsey or how do we make it better? How do we repurpose content? How do, what are we going to do? It's just interesting to see. And so congratulations with your current growth already. Um, but it all sounds unfamiliar to a lot of people. Hey, this guy is going to do this for the rest of his life. This guy's going to do this for another 30 years. He's going to grow this great. I mean, talk to people right now who are in career paralysis, who are stuck, who haven't quite figured out how to align their skills and their values for people who are listening to this and sounds, that sounds so foreign. I can never do something like that. What keeps you going and how do you help people get unstuck? It's not for everybody. So you said something really perceptive in the way you framed the question. You said, you know, this aligns with my values. It really does. So I'm 56 years old. This is the age where a lot of people are like, okay, I got enough money in the bank to survive. I'm going to cash out. So I've had enough time off over the course of my life, traveled the world, speaking to leaders around the world, the whole deal. I was very, very privileged. And, you know, I just can't lie on a beach. It's sort of that, that kind of, I talked to John Maxwell, interviewed him recently for my show, and he feels the same way. So he's not going at the pace he is at 75, I think, that he was at 45. But like, he loves making a contribution. He loves making a difference. And I think I'm wired the same way. So I am not going to slam people who want to go, you know, sit on a beach or buy a lake house and, and go hang out there and play golf for the rest of their life. I just know I've done enough of that. Mm. I get bored really quick. Mm. So the way I've looked at it, I mm. served the church for 20 years. I was an attorney before that very briefly. And uh, those were options for me. But I really felt like I don't want to go back to law. My wife's a lawyer and she, she does great at it. She stepped out of it too now to do different things. But, uh, you know, in the church, that was a season of my life. So it's like, what is my life about at this point? And it's sort of that, that, that Venn diagram of things you're gifted at, things you enjoy, and things that seem to help other people that, that can provide a living. And that comes together for me when it comes to equipping leaders. So I really do enjoy doing this. Like I have in Evernote pages of ideas I haven't written about yet, books that have yet to be written, interviews I really want to have, like a bucket list of people to interview. Mm -hmm. And so I actually love doing this work. I've done similar work for 30 years, but I really enjoy it. And, um, and for some reason, people show up. There's a viable audience. I'm, I'm reasonably good at it. And uh, I figured out how to support a team and support a life. Like, could I stop working? Yeah, I could stop working, but I enjoy it too much not to. So if you're stuck in career paralysis, I would ask, what are you gifted at? What gives you energy? And where do you see your biggest results? Those are the three questions. What are you good at? So let's run you through that. Like, what are you, what are you good at? What would you say? And, and look to other people too, because when I was in my 20s, I'm like, I'm good at everything. And then I realized, actually, I'm terrible at most things. Um, I'm probably good at communication and writing. So what would you say, Kevin, you're really best at your top skills? I say my, and the question I was going to ask, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll answer yours first. I was going to say, um, my intention is to have the most meaningful conversations that transform lives, both in personal, professional, and all my relationships that I have. So that's what Great. gives me that energy. This podcast right now, these conversations with a stranger on the street, a conversation with grandma, you know, once a week, something like that. That's what gives me me energy. Absolutely. Okay. And then, um, are people validating that? Are, are you seeing that in terms of audience and emails you get and text messages you get going, man, that was really helpful. Are you getting validation around that? You're serving the world. You know, I got my validation actually, the, the way I came up with that statement was I wrote down the five, 15 things that made me unique. And then I reached ah. out to my five closest family members and friends and asked them the same question. What makes me unique? Mm. And kind of the overlay was those meaningful conversations that have really transformed their lives. So I didn't really realize it at the time, but that's what kind of, I guess, 
keeps me grounded and keeps me going and gives me that foundation to continue the work that I do. And work. Simon Sinek would say you found your why then, which is really cool. That's the process he uses, part of the process. And then, and then can you live indoors and eat three meals a day um, on that? Yes, I do. I love cooking. <laughs> you live indoors, eat three meals a day. Then you probably got out of career paralysis. And for those people who are stuck in a job that they don't like, you know, I think we have to be careful because there's sure. a lot of advice on the internet. Not all of it is great. People are like, well, it's do different. what you love. Yeah. Seth Godin would argue, do no, no, don't, don't do what you love. Love what you do. Right. There are parts of your job or something that you're doing right now. Perhaps you're totally misaligned. But my guess is, particularly because of your audience, most people are doing something they love. Double click on that. Double click on that. Like I knew in, in leading a church. So in law, what was my favorite part of law? Favorite part of law was going to court. Loved being in court. Did not love contracts. Did not love drafting stuff. Loved being in court. Loved opposing what the other counsel was saying and loved trying to change a judge's mind. Mm. That was fun. Could do that all day, every day. When I was preaching and leading a church, what was my favorite part? Casting vision, um, aligning volunteers, strategy, communication. And so what do I run now? I run a communications company. So what's the, th and it went, in my teen years, I was in radio. So I did radio for a while. What, what links like law, radio, ministry, and now this company? Public all communication. Always went into public speaking, always went into communication. So you're going to find some common threads, like think back to what did you do for fun in high school? Right. What did you do in college? What did you do at other jobs you've had? And there'll be a favorite part. And then try to double click on that and really expand that area and you'll get out of career paralysis as long as you can, you know, eat indoors and eat three meals a day. So I love how you said, you know, that we got to be careful about what's on the internet. I totally believe it. I don't think it's a one size fit all thing, but I am curious how you analyze it. When you say you have the ability now to, I think you said, equip leaders, do you yeah. consider that your intention, a meeting, a why, and how do you you yourself come up with that process? Did you ask yourself your, you know, those own questions as well? What gives you energy? What I tried to do when I started writing content for general consumption on my website, so articles, blog posts, that kind of thing, and now podcasts, um, I tried to figure out the problems I was trying to solve. And I pulled from my well of mistakes. So if you go to my website, kerryneuhoff.com, click on blog, there's articles that go back like a decade and like, oh, I had to figure this out the hard way. So then I'll write on what did I learn? Well, I learned this and I learned that and I learned the other thing. So basically I want to give you shortcuts. Mm. And so at first it was kind of recreational and a hobby and it kept me out of prison and all that kind of stuff, right? Like stuff to do in my spare time. Sure. And then when, when first thousands and then hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of people showed up, I'm like, oh, this is really helping people. And I really enjoy it. So that wasn't validation that went to my identity, but it told me, oh, this is actually helpful because I could do recipes, but if I got like three people who are cooking the food I suggest, I'm probably not really helping them. Even if I'm doing five recipes a day, I'm not that good a cook. Mm -hmm. So this was an area where I think what I was able to offer really ran into the felt needs of a lot of leaders. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, all of a sudden I found something and, and it really seemed to, to resonate. So I've, I've kept doing it and I still enjoy it. And another point that you make often on the website or articles you have on the website is how to say no. And I think that's mm -hmm. something that's very underrated is once you find that intention, that purpose, that why, it also gives you clarity on what potentially you need to eliminate from your life. What are your thoughts on rejection, saying no, and eliminating uh, things that may not be aligned with your intention? It's definitely a struggle. Um, still is. I got a whole section in the At Your Best book that is all about saying no and categorical decision making. So what happens, and I imagine most of your listeners would have that challenge as well, is for most capable leaders, the opportunities available exceed the time available. It's just the way it is, right? So you have, you have more things you could do with your time than you have time. Uh, when I started out in leadership in my 20s, uh, I could fit everything into my calendar. It's like, yes, I'm free Friday and I'm free Monday and I'm free Wednesday. So when do you want to do it, right? You could say yes to everything. And then that usually quickly disappears. And the digital age we're in, 
has made that disappear super fast because our circle went from 100 to 150 people we were connected with to 1,500 or 15,000. And now you have strangers asking for you and cold calls and all that stuff. So you got to develop a filter because otherwise, if you're saying yes all the time, you, you get overwhelmed and overcommitted and burned out. And I think that's behind a lot of stress. So learning how to say no. Um, it's been a tough process, but here's, here's a couple of primers for people. Number one, um, be clear. So are you going to do this or are you not? And a lot of us say maybe, or a lot of us say not right now, or a lot of us say, oh, I'll do that in a month or two. But, but you've got to get comfortable with saying no. And a lot of us at heart are people pleasers. I'm a people pleaser at heart. I love, right. I would love to say, love right. to say yes to everybody. I, I just can't. I only have so many hours in the day. And so I've got to make a decision because if I say yes to everyone, I'm saying no to my wife. I'm saying no to my kids. I'm saying no to my sleep. I'm saying no to my priorities. I'm saying no to my health. So you got to realize that. So then, um, but if you truly would love to meet with somebody, do the event, whatever, start there and say, man, I'm so glad you, you asked. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, and then tell them, however, in light of my current obligations, in light of my current schedule, I am not able to do it. Now, maybe you can punt them to somebody else, although I'm not available, so-and-so for my team could help, or you could even point them to a rival. I'm not able to help, but so-and-so is an excellent blogger and they have more time and they'd be happy to talk to you. Interesting. Uh, and then say, but thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and, and you know, thank you. So that's like... Uh, a really polite way of saying no, but it's firm and it's clear. And my joke with my staff, I have a couple of people who work on answering the public inbox is I pay you to say no all day long. Mm. Cause that's basically it. When you have the levels of traffic that start to get up there, right. you get so many requests, so many cold calls. It's like, so I hire really nice people who have really great boundaries. And I find that I can do about 15 commitments a week. That's it. So if I have more than 15 meetings on my calendar, that's another thing, like know yourself. And for some of your listeners, it might be like 25 meetings a week, or it could be 30. Uh, for me, I, I got a low tolerance for that. It's about 15. Even though I might have wide open spaces on my calendar, if I get beyond 15 meetings a week, I know I'll be tired at the end of the week. I won't be very good. So I cap it. And so when my week's at 15, it's full. Mm. That's an example of a categorical decision. A lot of people make their decisions ad hoc. So it's like, I'm going to say no to this. I'll say no to this. And then you get into decision fatigue and everything. Another way to think about it, which I think is super helpful, is to say categorically, what am I deciding not to do? So I wrote a parenting book a number of years ago, a decade ago. It sold over 100,000 copies. Very, very fortunate. But my kids are now in their 20s. And a few years ago, I made the decision because I don't have a lot of parenting content. It's kind of all in that book. And it was a season of my life. And parenting 29 and 25-year-olds is very different than parenting eight-year-olds. So I'm like, I think that season of my life is close. So now if you ask me to do a parenting event or speak to parents, I'm like, I don't do that anymore. I have this book, but I just, so that's an easy decision. Those don't even come to me. Um, generally, because I do a lot of public speaking, I speak to leaders. Mm. So because this is a leadership podcast and you knew someone I knew that was an easier yes, then, hey, I just talked to a bunch of people. So I will do a leadership event before I do a general audience event. Other things, I used to do breakfast meetings. I don't do breakfast meetings because my best time is in the morning. I want to use that productively and breakfast meetings are not the best use of my time. So, you know, when you start making decisions, I already know if you're like, Carrie, can you do a breakfast meeting? It would be like, actually, I, I don't do breakfast meetings, but thank you so much for asking. So if you make those decisions ahead of time, Kevin, that's when you and your team are really empowered to do that. And you don't have to be mean about it. We already covered that. And it makes things so much clearer. It's like where, why Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs wear the same outfit every day, t-shirt, you know, or black turtleneck and khakis because it's one less decision you have to make. And when you're operating at a very highly efficient level, deciding what you will and won't do ahead of time is very strategic. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And from a leadership perspective as well, let's talk about maybe that second or third tier of leaders, 51 to 100 employees, 101 yeah. to 500. Um, I like what you said about priorities and making sure when it comes to a decision, or let's say, 
a new idea. We have plenty of them, and they're killers sometimes. How does a leadership team eliminate time wasted on new ideas in order to grow the company? Yeah, it's a bit of a dilemma because you have to be open to new ideas, especially because things are changing so quickly. But it goes back to what Jim Collins taught about, what Steve Jobs talked about. It's simply this, the hedgehog principle. What can I be best at the world at? Like, what do you really... What are you really, really good at? So it's a variation of what we already Mm. talked about, right? I'm a good communicator. So if you're asking me to write code, I have a son who's a computer engineer. I'm not going to write your code for you. So we already know that. What is your company best at the world at? What problem do you solve? So I solve leadership problems that you would normally try to solve through getting an MBA or go to business school. I solve your leadership problems for you. I've got online courses. I can teach you to lead a better team. It's not the only team course in the world, but in 10 sessions for, you know, a couple hundred dollars, you're going to get some of the best training you've had on team leadership, short, condensed bites, and it will make a difference that will save you thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars a year in productivity, uh, reduce employee turnover. I know I can do that. So if somebody says to me, Carrie, you want to do a joint venture on this? You know, it's multi-level marketing. It's like, no, that's not my lane. That's not my lane. So what can you be best in the world at? Um, secondly, are you, are you really, is there anything you can cut? Is there anything in what you're currently doing that is not getting you promised results? So maybe it used to be really good for you five years ago, but if you're putting sideways energy into that, you might want to cut that. And then the other thing I would do is run your new ideas through a matrix. And you can even do it, uh, you know, we do something, especially in COVID, we went to a 30-day pivot. So because everything was changing so rapidly and nobody knew where the metrics were, where the scoreboard was anymore, we would try things for 30 days. And so let's implement it, one-hour strategy session, let's implement it, see how it went. For the first time, we've always charged for our courses. We decided, wow, you know, the stock market was tanking. People were laying off. There were furloughs like crazy. It seems like a long time ago, but that was only 18 months ago. Mm -hmm. And we said, okay, for the first time, I couldn't even bring in a crew in lockdown, but I shot a free course on my iPhone. Looked great. You couldn't even tell it wasn't shot professionally because iPhone and lighting and all that stuff. Had a good mic. I shot it. We gave it away for free. Mm. Never done that before. We didn't know. Is that going to undercut like our paid model? Are we going to be in business six months from now? How's that going to go? What that did, we ran 15,000 leaders through that free course. Nice. Those leaders eventually, when the world became more stable, started to become customers. So that was a really good decision. And what that taught us was, okay, there's a huge market for free and it's a lead generator. It's like the gallon of milk that the supermarket is selling for $1.99. It costs them $3.99 for that milk. They're selling it at a loss. But the idea is to get you in the store because on the way out, notice the milk is always at the back. You're going to pass the chip aisle and you'll pass, uh, you know, the water aisle and you'll pass, oh, I need some coffee. Oh, and I better get some bananas and some watermelon. And next thing you know, you know, your $1.99 gallon of milk, you now have a $48 bill and they've made their money back. Hmm. So, So I would say the ability to pivot because I also think we're in the age where the annual strategic plan, we're still going to do it for 2022. But dude, change is so fast. Mm -hmm. Like you got to be able to be flexible. And I think in this age, agility is ability. Mm -hmm. So if it doesn't work, you kill it, you squash it, you don't commit to it, and you pivot again. Kerry, do you believe in org charts or behavior-based strategies uh, based on authority? Uh, Anything that would structure your organization to be more efficient, to make better decisions and to also be in in alignment and how do you position in your company i believe in clarity Clarity. so uh we i tend to be very flat so you know our staff when i let it had like 15 on it now we have eight so we're small organization that's actually the majority of american business if you look at most american businesses a lot of them are solo efforts right Everything from the mechanic who's like, I didn't want to work for the man. So I open up my garage. It's a one bay garage and I just do oil changes and break jobs all day, right? Through right. to the solopreneur, through, through to the person who owns the small shop, to the not-for-profit that has three staff. That is the majority of businesses in America. And so, uh, you know, in a law firm, it's a totally different thing or a big organization. But for me, 
I believe in teamwork and I believe in clarity. So we just actually redid our org chart so we have it. And so you want clarity there. But what I really want is people in the area they're gifting, people with clear responsibilities. I'd rather have clear job descriptions than a clear org chart. And then what people need to do, I also have a company value system. We work really hard on our values. And a lot of people just do it because they downloaded something off the internet. It's like, here's our values, excellence, integrity, wonder, you know, whatever. Or I heard it on a podcast. So I just wrote those down. We hammered it out and we expressed them uniquely. So for example, I lead a distributed company. It's a totally virtual company. So when COVID hit, we were ready. We've been virtual since 2015. So it wasn't that hard. But when I can't be in Indiana and Memphis and New Jersey and Toronto, and I'm here in my office, which is in my house, how do I make sure my employees know what to do? Well, we have our values. We have a clear mission to help people thrive in life and leadership, but we also have values. So one of our values is choose trust. You're like, what kind of value is that? It asks the question, am I believing the best or assuming the worst? Because we have a no gossip rule in our staff team. And our values determine how we do things. So we believe the best about you. If you didn't get something done, Kevin, instead of going to like, oh, Kevin, you know, Kevin, 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 what about Kevin? It's like, man, I hope he's okay. Hey, hey, you better talk to Kevin to make sure he's okay. Something must have come up. There must be something bad. Maybe his mom got sick or something like that. I don't know. And so Kevin, hey, man, you're always good on deadlines. Like what happened, right? Rather than, oh, Kevin, there you are late again. Mm. So we don't have a lot of gossip behind the scenes. Another one, I've got people making policy decisions all the time. We err on the side of generosity. Why do we err on the side of generosity? We don't sell iPhones, but if your iPhone cracks and all you hear is, oh, I'm sorry, we don't really cover that. Um, you're pretty disappointed. So if it's a question, if it's really, you know, if you smash your iPhone, that's a different thing. But if you like, we've all dropped it in the toilet back in the day and tried to bring it back to the store. It's like, is there water damage in there? Right. Um, we want to err on the side of generosity with our team. So we have like this money back guarantee. If you take our course for the first 30 days, for any reason, including you did the whole course, got all the benefit out of it, and now you want your money back, we'll give you your money back. Hmm. And that sounds like, whoa, that's a huge risk. We have, I think the industry standard is a 10 to 30% refund rate on online products. Mm -hmm. Ours is less than 1%. Wow. Even though we offer that. Why? Because we try to crush the courses. Mm -hmm. And so therefore we can err on the side of generosity. So when you say, hey, I want my money back. We're like, Kevin, no problem at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes if you had a bad experience for a legitimate reason, we'll send you a book for free as well. Mm And the next time something comes along and you're like, those guys are good guys. I'll try it again. It's, Carrie, there? Okay. I was going to say, I'm it's, here. it's so, just for, for me, uh, for a little bit, it's so underrated. It's so underrated. Core values are so underrated. Yeah. I feel like consumers are also driven and gravitate towards your organization, your courses, because of these values. They're in it for me. And your employees feel the same way. And everything that they do that they put into that product is going to have those values. So it's, it's something that really manifests in everything that you do in your organization. Oh, you're so right. And it's not, here's, here's a secret. It's not just for the customers, although it is for the customers. And listen, we treat you that way, whether you've never given us a penny or a dollar. So if you're someone who just emails the public inbox, has a right. question, you read all my free stuff. We treat you like you were a paying customer because we want our free stuff to be better than most people's paid stuff. So that's another like unwritten value of our company. But here's the hidden benefit. If you have a healthy culture and those core values are solid, another one is pursue health. Am I living in a way today that will help you thrive tomorrow? Um, you know, so if our, if our team is tired, we're like, we'll take Friday off. Uh, one of the exercises when I took a month off, people are like, you're really going to be gone for a month? I'm like, yep. And your homework next week is to come back and write all the dates on the calendar when you're going to be away. Because I have a problem where a team is so engaged, they don't want to take time off. Well, what about this? What about that? It's like, no, your homework is to actually write your calendar on the vacation and then really take the time off. So when you have a healthy culture like that, guess what happens? You have really happy employees, mm. happy employees who have better personal lives, a better work life who show up energized, who most days are excited about the work, that leaks out. Like when you're on a flight and you have a nasty flight attendant, maybe it's a grouchy flight attendant 
chances are he or she has a nasty boss or it's a terrible company to work for. So if you become a really great company to work for, an impact or not-for-profit organization, sometimes do really good work but have really bad cultures, mm. um, you have to be careful. Churches are famous for that. So I, uh, you know, doing really good work but really bad cultures. And so you want to have a really great thing. And I mean, last week we got back from vacation and I had a handwritten note from one of my team members who just thanked me for the way we run the organization and how much she values being a part of it. So what I want to do, John Maxwell calls that people development. I want you to be a better person when you leave my team. We have one team member who's transitioning to a new job. We're super excited for him. I hope he will look back on this as three of the best years of his life. He was really grateful for being with us. I hope that he is a better person with even greater developed life skills because he worked with us rather than leaving with his knuckles dragging, hitting the ground, hating us, saying bad things about us. And when he's happy about his job, when the team's happy about their job, that leaks out into the customers too. So your team is your secret sauce because we've all called the 1-800 number and got the, hello, I, I, I called over. I waited online for an hour last month on my month off to fix worst. this machine I bought to m repel mosquitoes a year ago. Waited for an hour and 10 minutes. I'm like, well, I'm off for a month. I can be on hold for a while. Anyway, when it was over, I could barely hear the employee, like really bad software. And I'm like, hey, I've been on the phone for an hour. If this call drops, will you call me back? Because we've all had that happen yes. too. She's like, no, we're too busy. I can't call you back. I'm like, okay. And then she couldn't really solve my problem either. Right. I don't have a very good perception of that company anymore. And I paid hundreds of dollars for the product. And if you're making your employees wait, if you're making your customers wait an hour and 10 minutes, mm. and you're saying your call is really important to us, mm -hmm. nobody believes you anymore. Right. If my call was really important to them, I would have had a 90 second wait time and they would have hired more people. Right. And I would have gladly paid another 50 or $100 for a product that actually worked and a customer service department that worked as well. Right, right. Oh, it, it, it all goes together. Uh, mm -hmm. Sales, manufacturing, support. If one if support isn't good, and, you know, you're not going to have those customers come back. If your sales aren't good, you're not going to have the revenue to come in to feed into operations. It's all, it's all interconnected. But Carrie, what I, what I found so interesting is that not only are you developing your own core values, which creates yeah. alignment and clarity in the company, and that manifests to the company and the products, and the products that you sell are also doing the same thing for other organizations. When yeah. you think about the ultimate impact of what you're doing here, why do you think your organization exists? We exist to help people thrive in life and leadership. What I mean by that is I've watched way too many people get excited. We're all idealists in our teens and 20s, right? We're all gonna change the world. In law, I wasn't in law very long, but I watched so many lawyers get cynical by 30, 35. I watched so many people just get dragged down. You know, their family falls apart, marriage falls apart. They, they become cynical about their clients and it just broke my heart. And then being a pastor for two decades, seeing people come into the church so beat up by life, so beat up by um, addictions or failures or even success. And it's like, is this all there is, you know, to quote Jack Nicholson from years ago, is this as good as it gets? Like, mm. is this all there is? And then, and then, you know, I don't think it's gotten any easier in the last five years, Kevin. I think it's gotten harder. The culture's more divided. Uh, we have bigger problems to solve like pandemics and climate issues. Man, there's just so much. And people, people are getting worn down. If there, if there was a way to live, and that's why I wrote at your best, if there was a way to live, where you could thrive every day. Yeah, you're going to have challenges. Yes, people are going to quit. Yes, you're going to have friends who kind of go rogue on you. Yes, you're going to have headlines that you don't even want to read. But if you get some margin in your life and you're sleeping at night and you can be kind to your kids and you can be kind to the people you care about and you can create a compassionate environment and a powerful environment, because here's, here's what's challenging in the impact sector you either have really good causes and really bad process, or you're like, you know, you, you are a charity, but you operate like a charity. So you don't have a particularly competent team. Listen, high talent density, Netflix talks about this in their culture. 
top performers want to be around other top performers. So if you can create, and, and what's happened, and I haven't done this perfectly, but like, you know, we regularly have team members tell us that this is the most excited they've been, that as a result of being in the company, they're actually having a better marriage. They're better parents. They're having a better life. Like, man, if you can have that, like, why not? And isn't that a good use in the next decade or two of my life? Like, that would be awesome. And the lives of the other people I partner with. Like, that's a pretty cool thing to get to do. Mm. So I'm just, I'm just really excited about that. Maybe one day I won't be right, right now. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know. I can't, I don't think that has an expiry date. Mm. No, it doesn't. And I think when you, when you think about exponentiality, you say, oh, I don't know how to position my company. Well, what you're putting out into the world is going to manifest in the world, whether you know it or not. When you think about a million people coming to your site, it's very hard to comprehend. A million people reading your stuff, learning, taking those principles and applying it to the real world basis. You said thrive in life and leadership is why your company exists. So, Carrie Newhoff, what is your definition of a real leader? Real leader is someone who uses their power to help other people. It's powerful. And it's a powerful mm. podcast today. Well, you have influence, right? As a leader, you have influence. And historically in organizations, you can see this by studying medieval kings. You can see this in politicians. All the benefits of leadership tend to flow to the leader. And, um, you know, you get the preferred parking space, you get the top salary, you get people. And eventually what happens is, is people stop telling you the truth. So you never hear the truth. You don't hear that they don't like you being a jerk in the meeting or that you're not pulling your weight in the company. And so, you know, from my faith perspective, it got flipped and the most powerful person in the universe used his life and leadership, um, to give himself up for other people. And so I think that's what we're called to. And the greatest leaders, you look at Martin Luther King Jr., very controversial figure at the time, but we would almost all regard him as a hero. And what did he do? He devoted his life to helping others, millions of other people, and changed history in the process. Um, so, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's not a very fun story. It gets old quick. But if you use your power to benefit other people, doesn't mean you can't have a nice office. Doesn't mean you can't have money in your own bank account. But if that isn't your focus, it's like what Zig Ziglar says. If you help enough people get what they want, they, you will eventually get what you want. Mm. And so don't worry so much about what you want. And that kind of goes to Julie's questions too for young leaders. Focus on helping other people get what they want. Eventually you will get what you want. It's powerful stuff, Carrie. Appreciate you coming on the Leaders Podcast. And never forget, great power comes great responsibility. Uh, so, Carrie, appreciate your time being here on the Real Leaders Podcast today. For everyone listening out there, go out there, be someone who uses their power to influence people, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks so much, Kevin. All right, and thank you, good people, for hanging into this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Carrie Newhoff. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Now it's time to open up the floor for a few questions. And now, Carrie, you may have already answered this. Maybe elaborate on this question that's coming from Julie. She asks, yeah. for young leaders today, what advice could you give them to steer clear from and why? On the flip side, what do you think they should gravitate towards? Hmm. So Julie, love your question. Um, if you're a young leader, I'm going to assume under 40, let's say you're in your 20s. When I was in my 20s, we didn't have social media. And that was a great advantage because basically you could keep your head down and pay attention to things. I think one of the great distractions, and I coach a lot of young leaders, is you can be so tempted to have instant success. You know, I want 100,000 followers on Instagram. I want, I want to be running a seven-figure organization by the time I'm 25. And that happens once in a while. But that is often a byproduct of something else sure. right now if you if you look at the data most 12 year olds want to be youtubers it's like yeah that's possible but uh, what i would say is focus on the core values what what are you what are you best at where can you make a contribution you know hustle hard um know your boundaries and don't get burned out and just focus on doing really really great work 
And then eventually what happens is you have a story to tell. Eventually what happens is you can start helping other people. But as a young leader, what you really want to be doing is honing your skill set and not worrying about the outward success. And then on the flip side, you ask, what do you think they should gravitate towards? Um, I think you should gravitate toward really getting your character developed. Um, if you ever get a platform, because most young leaders I talk to want a platform. They want to start a podcast. They want to write a book. They want you know, to be an influencer on TikTok or Instagram. Mm -hmm. I would focus on your character. So yeah, we do have a lot of leaders who follow us right now. I was telling a friend earlier today, if that had happened to me when I was 30, I don't think I would have the character to sustain it. I might've imploded my marriage. It might've gone straight to my head. Not that that's not a temptation now. And, um, and so I, I, would, I would really develop your character because your character has to be bigger than your platform mm. because if it's not, it will implode. Mm. What do you do to develop your character? I think that's a spiritual, emotional, and relational thing where spirituality, whatever that looks like for you, for me, it's my faith. Um, I really have to chisel away at that mm -hmm. and let, let scripture and prayer and God's direction shape my character so that I am off screen who I appear to be on screen, that I'm better to my wife than I am to the people who read or listen to me. Um, because often what happens is the people closest to you take the brunt of your leadership. So I'm really nice on this podcast, but then I run upstairs and yell at everybody in the house. That that's right. not good. That's right. not good. So you want you want the people closest to you to have the best experience of you. You want your private walk to match your public talk. So I think that is what I would gravitate toward. Mm. Very well put. Another one comes in from Mel, and she asks, "Have you put any routines into place in your life?" If so, which have been the most beneficial? Probably the most beneficial. And uh, I got a copy of the book. It comes out in September. It's called At Your Best. You can see green, yellow, and red. I would think of dividing your day into green, yellow, and red zones. So what I mean by that is ask yourself the question, when are you best? So let's pick on Kevin for a second. Morning person, night owl. What are you, Kevin? Morning you person. Have? Morning person. Okay. What hours, like 5 a.m., 7 a.m., when, when are you kind of alive and producing great stuff? Um, up at 5.30, uh, and yeah. then get a workout in at 6.15, so I'm probably set, ready to go around 7.15, 7.30. So you're rolling by 7.15, 7.30? Yeah, yeah. Okay, what I would do, that is what I would call your green zone. That's okay. when your brain is fresh. If you're going to prep for an interview or write something, that's probably when you're at your best. Most leaders only have three to five hours to do that every day. And um, that's mm. like science. It's like uh, you don't have 17 best hours because you get tired, you know, you're caffeinated by the afternoon and, you know, you're kind of dragging your knuckles. You can't think clearly. So that's your green zone, your best hours, three to five in a day. Red zone is when you're dragging your knuckles, you can't think straight, you're tired. Usually we have one or two hours. Mine is in the afternoon. What would yours be? That time where you're like, oh, I need a nap or I got to go for a walk or something. Yeah, around like that 3 p.m. Uh, 3 p.m. I, I do usually do emails around then. That's, That's like smart. Do. Okay. Yeah. And then yellow zone is everything in between. The mistake a lot of leaders make is they don't know the different zones. And what they do is they do their most important work haphazardly. So my most important work is content prepping for interviews, writing a book, writing a talk, a speech, that kind of thing, uh, writing a blog. That's my most important work because it generates everything else. I need to do that in the morning. And what happens is if I waste my green zone, I'm a morning person too, then I end up in a place where, uh, you know, it's four o'clock in the afternoon and gosh, I gotta have that talk ready. It's due tomorrow and I'm flying out in the morning and you cram it in. So do that when you're at your best and that's where you start to see exponential results. Carrie, well put. And where can people find more information about uh, this book, At Your Best, as well as uh, all your courses online? Totally. So the gateway right now is at atyourbesttoday.com to the book. And uh, we have everything there for you, including some free resources. And you'll get free access to a masterclass that I'm teaching if you pre-order the book. So that's atyourbesttoday.com. And uh, otherwise, go to kerryneuhoff.com to find it all there. Wonderful. All right, folks, atyourbest.com. Kerry, appreciate your time coming on the earliest podcast today. It was a pleasure, my friend. Thank you.
Great to be here. Wonderful. For Carrie Newhoff, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real